0: Now as we open up our final verses of First and Second Thessalonians, Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the work that you've done in it through our lives over the past five months. And we remember our hope that Jesus, you are coming again. As we just sang, soon and very soon, we will see you with our eyes. We will be satisfied in our hearts. We will fall down before you in worship. We look forward to that day, and we pray that you would continue to establish that day as our blessed hope. We pray that until that day comes, we would be faithful we would persevere. We would endure suffering. We would be obedient to your word. We would spread the gospel to your lost sheep who do not know you yet. And this morning we would pray, come Lord Jesus. Come and restore the brokenness of this world. Come and save your people. Come and and judge and make right and and magnify your glory so that, that as the Scripture says, your glory covers the earth as the water covers the sea. We, We long for that day. Lord, speak to us now. Your Word is powerful. It is living. It is active. Our hearts, on their own, just grow harder and harder. We we are so easily deceived. We we don't see things rightly. We don't see ourselves rightly. We don't follow you the way we ought, and we need you to do surgery on our hearts through your word. So we pray now that by your spirit you would do that, Lord. I pray that you would fill me with your words. I pray that you would fill the congregation with ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open your Bibles this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, our text this morning is verses 16 through 18. For the past five months, we have been in a series through the books of First and 2 Thessalonians titled, Until He Comes. And these books are actually letters that were written from the Apostle Paul to a young church that he had helped to plant in the city of Thessalonica. And we've called this series Until He Comes because over and over again, Paul calls these new believers to remember that Jesus is coming again and then to live in light of that hope. Here's what Paul teaches in First and 2 Thessalonians, that Jesus will come again and that when he does, he will judge the world, he will conquer Satan, and he will bring his people into his glory forever and ever. That's the hope he lays out. And he says, live in light of that. Live in light of that day. So, so, so what I want to do is ask, what kind of lives should we be living until he comes? According to these letters that we've looked at the last five months, what kind of lives should we be living? If that's, if that's our hope, what would our lives look like? And here's what Paul says, until Jesus comes, we should be living lives of resounding witness to the gospel. Our witness should be going forward wherever we can go. We should be spreading the good news of what Jesus has done for us and that He's coming again. Our lives should be marked by perseverance through suffering because we know it's temporary, we know it's momentary, we know what our hope is. Our lives should be marked by personal holiness because He is a holy God who is going to judge unholiness. Our lives should be marked by sexual purity, brotherly love, faithful work, we should live lives that look different than the world's. Even to the point that in times of grief, our lives should be marked by hope. By realization that death is not the final answer, but that through Jesus there is resurrection life. Our lives should be marked by a soberness about about where we are and and where we're headed. And and through that, we should build each other up in the context of the church. We should should follow and pray for our leaders. We should encourage the faint-hearted, help each other, be at peace with each other. Our lives should be marked by constant prayer, constantly praying to God, constantly giving thanks to God, constantly rejoicing in the gospel. Our lives should be marked by obedience to the Spirit as as He speaks to us through His Word. We should obey Him. We should follow Him. We should listen to Him. It should be marked by good works that, that, that we are seeking to, to season this world with the goodness of Christ that, that, that points to the gospel of Christ. It should, it should be marked by doctrinal purity that, that, that we realize that truth is necessary to be saved and so we're going to cling to the truth and hold to the truth. It should be marked by church purity that that that. A pure church is necessary for people to see that, that repentance is necessary to be saved, that, that we're going to encourage each other to repent of sin. And when someone doesn't repent in love, we're going to call them to repentance and, and even discipline them in cases so that they realize how important it is to repent from sin and put their faith in Christ. These are the things that mark a church that believes that Jesus is coming again. A church that believes he's coming again will look like that. Redeemer family, this morning I want you to know that I see these things in you. I praise God for his grace in bringing these things about in you. And just like Paul did throughout these letters, I want to encourage you this morning, do it more and more. So so, so church, I I see holiness in you. Keep growing in holiness. Just keep pursuing holiness. I, I see brotherly love. I see affection for each other. Keep establishing that affection. Keep building it up. I see hope for Christ's return. I see perseverance. So keep persevering. Keep enduring. Keep building each other up. I see a people who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ. So let's continue to be a community of repentance, a community of faith. I praise God for His grace and I pray that His grace will continue to help us grow more and more. Now as we come to the final verses of Thessalonians, there's one final thing that should mark a people who believe that Jesus is coming again. Peace. As Paul concludes his letter, this is where he lands. He wants these believers, no matter what is going on in their lives, no matter where they are, no matter what they're experiencing, he wants them to know the deep, true, supernatural peace that comes only through Jesus Christ. So let's read this morning's passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, 16-18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The title of this morning's sermon is The Lord of Peace. And I'm specifically praying for two things this morning. First, church, I'm praying for your hearts. And I'm praying that even as you experience life in a sin-broken world, that your hearts will be filled with the peace that's talked about in this passage. Second, I'm praying for your witness. I'm praying that as God fills you with His peace, God would establish you as a compelling witness to this sin-broken world. So so, so I'm praying He'll fill you with peace for your own heart, that you'll know it, but then as you know it, as you experience that peace, that you will be a light to all those in this world who are still in that sin-brokenness and who don't know peace. We live in a world that is starving for peace. Peace may be the most universal felt need in our world. People want peace. They don't have peace. And I'm praying that God would so grant you peace that it will establish your witness in this world. So this morning we're going to be looking at peace. We're going to see four things that we need to know about peace. Four things that we need to know about peace. First, what is peace? Second, what steals our peace? Third, who gives us Peace. And fourth, how to experience peace. What is it? What steals it from us? Who gives it to us and how to experience it? And so first, let's, let's just think for a moment. This is just, before we dive into our text itself, just think about what is what is peace? What is Paul actually talking about when he tells the Thessalonian church that he wants them to have Peace. This is important for us to do because the way the Bible talks about peace and, and the way that our culture tends to think about peace are pretty different. So, so culturally, we tend to think of peace in a few different ways. So, sometimes we use the word peace to describe the absence of conflict. Like, like when there's enemies and the conflict ends, then, then we have peace. Right? So, so maybe there were warring parties, and now there's, there's, a, there's a peace treaty signed. Or maybe there was a relationship that, that used to be good, but then it turned really bad, and now they're not fighting anymore. There's peace. Just the absence of conflict. We talk about peace that way. Or you'll often hear, especially if you watch Miss America pageants very often, you hear about world peace, right? You hear about world peace. And uh, you know, this, this is this is uh, something that maybe we we tease a little bit. We realize that, that that's so far fetched, but but it's it's very much the goal of many people in our world that that they would see that peace and work toward that peace. Think about this song from John Lennon. It's called Imagine. He says, imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will live as one. I love that song, but I hate the message. It's it's a terrible message. It's, it's, it's uh, no religion, no heaven, no hell, but 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 world peace. That, that just that that one day there's gonna be a day when, when everything's right. Every we're all we're all just happy together, utopia. But probably most often when we talk about peace in our culture, what we really mean is nothing more than a vague feeling of of tranquility, we, the, the fuzzies, you know, just, just the, the fuzzy feelings in our hearts that, that, that I feel good right now, I feel, I feel fine, or everything, everything's okay. We, we might say, this song makes me feel so peaceful, or, or when I take a walk in that place, I, I just feel peace. And it's just a feeling, it's, it's, just, it's just something that we feel, and it's not based on anything outside of that feeling in that moment. It's often what, what our culture thinks of as as Peace. Now, according to the Bible, peace does have to do with our relationships and, and conflict. It does have to do with the world. It does have to do even with our hearts and what we feel. It's just that biblical peace is much better than what the world has to offer. Biblical peace is much biblical peace is much bigger and better than what the world is aiming for. So, just a general just a general definition of the term peace in Scripture. Just if you, if you try to put it all as simply as possible into into whenever it talks about peace, what is it talking about? I think we could say that when the Bible talks about peace, it means that things are the way that God means for them to be. Things are the way that God means for them to be, the way he designed them to be. And this has several dimensions to it. So when it comes to our relationships, while we think of peace as the absence of conflict, the Bible describes peace using the term reconciliation. Which means that it's not just that the two parties involved aren't at war anymore. It means they're actually restored to a place of friendship. Peace is when things are the way God means for them to be in our relationships. And that has to do with our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. That, that, that's what the Bible talks about peace is this reconciled relationship. Where there, there was once war, now there's friendship again. But but also, I mean, the Bible has its own version of what... People might call world peace. Uh, it, it, It aims not only at reconciliation, but it talks about restoration, the restoration of creation. The Bible envisions one day a peace that permeates all of creation. The Old Testament prophesies of a king who would come and he is called the prince of peace and he's going to establish an eternal, everlasting peace in the world heaven and earth, the whole universe, everything will be in a right and good state under the reign of God the King. That's peace. It's it's, it's this big cosmic reality that God is going to bring peace to his creation one day. And then related to both those things, the the peace of reconciled relationships, the peace of restored creation, is is the peace that maybe we we most often think about, which is the peace of, of our hearts. But, but it's not fuzzy feelings of peace. It's, it's, it's the peace of true heart rest. The Bible holds out a true and deep inward peace to us. It's the, it's the rest that Paul wants these believers to experience. When he, when he says, I pray that you may have peace, he's praying for this inward heart rest that's not just a feeling but it's based in the realities of reconciliation and the realities of restoration. It's based in those things, and it brings inward rest. You know, our older two children have reached a stage where they have really learned to play together well, which is great. It's great when they just play together, they're having fun, they're laughing, it's so fun to be around it, but it also means that they've learned to fight it means that they've learned to not share their things, that they've learned to yell at each other and to hit each other and to try to hurt each other. You know, just so, so much malicious intent in that moment. And, and so, in the most chaotic moments of life, lots of things are going on and then all of a sudden they're, they're, they're fighting over a toy and they're, they're trying to hurt each other. Here's what peace looks like. I come to them and I say, kids... You get in that room, you get in that room. Do not get near each other, don't look at each other, don't touch each, don't even think about each other. And then as they do that, if they do that, which almost never happens, then then peace is I, I sit down in the chair between the two rooms and I just enjoy peace. Just peace and quiet. That's not peace. That's not biblical peace. That, that, that is temporary peace. That is peace that doesn't aim at the heart at all. That, that is just trying to get a moment of, of feeling good. That's, there's nothing, nothing good is going on there. Nothing real is going on there. That's often what we think of as peace. God holds out something so much better than that. He holds out to us reconciliation, restoration, rest in our hearts. That's biblical peace. That's what we're talking about in this passage. Rest in our hearts, That's rooted in reconciliation, rooted in the restoration that God's going to bring. It's what peace is. So so secondly then, we need to ask, what steals our peace? Why don't we have that peace? What what things in our lives get in the way of that peace? You notice in this prayer, in verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And, And that phrase, at all times in every way, helps us to realize that there are times and there are situations where this peace is fleeting. Things happen in our lives where where that peace is not so accessible to us. There are things that steal that peace. And Paul's writing to reclaim those times, so you should have peace in those times. But we need to ask, well, well, what things steal our peace? As we've gone through the second letter Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, we've asked several times, why did Paul write this letter? We know why he wrote the first one, to encourage this young church who was suffering persecution, and he wrote it. But then he wrote another one, and we've asked, why, why is he writing this? And, and we've seen in chapter 1, he primarily addressed the suffering of the church. They, they still were being persecuted. They still needed to endure. And he was reminding them uh, of, the, of the hope of the gospel to help them to endure suffering. In chapter 2, though, he addressed false teaching. He, he addressed the this, this spiritual opposition that was happening as Satan was sending false teachers into this church with a false message to them. And he's, he's helping them to see that, that this was false and what the truth is. And in chapter 3, he addressed the, the problem of unrepentant sin in the body, that there were believers who time and time again had been given instructions, and they would not listen, and they would not obey And the body's looking at this, what do we do with these people who won't obey the word of God? And he writes to help them understand their responsibility in that situation. Suffering, spiritual warfare, sin. That's what this church was facing. Now that we've reached the end of the letter, especially as we see Paul's final emphasis as he closes, I believe that Paul wrote this letter Not primarily to give the church solutions to their problems, but to give the church peace in the midst of these problems. Yes, he gave them instruction on what to do, but as he closes, he says, I want you to have peace at all times, in every way, even when you are suffering persecution even when you are being opposed by Satan, even when you are troubled by sin. These things were stealing the peace of the Thessalonian church, and Paul writes to them to help them recover the peace that's theirs in Christ. Church, just like the Thessalonians, we experience the realities of suffering, spiritual warfare, and sin all the time. And when these things come, they easily rob us of our peace. We feel fearful, We feel anxious. We feel guilty. That heart rest is fleeting. And what we want to do is figure out how do we make these things go away so that we can have peace again. And here's what God has helped me to recognize. These things aren't going away. We suffer and we will continue to suffer until Jesus comes. We face spiritual opposition, and we will continue to face spiritual opposition until Jesus comes. We sin and are sinned against, and we will continue to deal with sin until Jesus comes. If we look for peace through a change in these realities, we will never have it in this life. These realities will always be with us. So what do we make of that? Is peace even possible in such a sin-broken world? How can we get peace? Now, some, some religions recognizing this problem say that the only way to get peace is by losing our attachment to this world altogether. All, all in a way, that all, there's so much insight in, in Buddhism's mantra that to live is to suffer. They recognize that life is marred and marked by brokenness. There's, there's, there's no such thing as life without suffering. But, but then they say, the, so the only way to peace is, is to detach yourself from all desire, detach yourself from, from anything in this life. Others simply cling to the hope of future peace. They, they believe that one day peace will come, whether it's, whether it's through God establishing peace or whether it's through us bringing peace. But they believe that, that it's out there somewhere, but, but it's not here today. To talk about peace here and now makes no sense. It's out there, it's coming, but it's not here. There's no such thing as peace here and now. We can't have peace until these things are gone and taken care of. But for most people, the way to have peace is simply to cover up the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. Maybe through entertainment. Maybe through busyness. Maybe through work. Maybe through hobbies, maybe through drinking and eating, exercising, relationships, religion, anything to help us not have to face the fact that there is a deep restlessness in our hearts that we cannot seem to shake. Peace in the sin-broken world seems impossible. But the good news of this passage, the good news of the gospel, is that there is someone who gives us peace. There is someone who gives us peace here and now, today, in whatever situation you are in. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Jesus Christ is the Lord of peace who can give us peace in any and every situation, at any time, and in every place. Remember how the Bible defines peace. Just a few minutes ago, what does the Bible mean by peace? It means it means that things are the way God means for them to be, and this includes the reconciliation of of people with God and with each other. It includes the restoration of creation. It includes rest for our hearts. Because Jesus is the Lord of peace, what we mean is that Jesus is the one who brings those things about. Jesus is the one who brings about reconciliation, who brings about restoration, who brings about rest as the Lord of peace. Listen to this. Jesus is the one who brings about the peace of reconciliation between enemies. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And so, think about this. The way that peace is accomplished is through through the most unpeaceful reality imaginable, that, that the Son of God is slaughtered by sinful men who hate Him and who want to reject Him, that in that moment, God is reconciling the world to Himself because that Son is laying down His life willingly, bearing their sins willingly on that cross, taking the enmity, taking the penalty, taking the sin, so that we who once were enemies can be reconciled to God. We can have the peace of reconciliation with God. But more than that, as we're reconciled to God, we're also Reconciled to each other, to one another. Christianity is not just about your relationship with God, it's about your relationship with each other, with one another. Here's what Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Think think about that image again. Through the cross, through his death, through him being killed, he's killing the hostility. That's how God accomplishes peace. Through through the death of his son, he kills hostility between warring parties. Not just us and God, but each other. Because we're all at, at this common ground at the cross. At the cross, we are all sinners in need of grace. And Jesus establishes that. He is the Lord of peace who brings reconciliation. But not only that, He's the Lord of peace who brings restoration. Colossians 1, 19-20 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and listen, through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So again, the thing that makes peace is the blood of His cross. This is not just peace personally between us and God or us and each other. This is a peace of all things, the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth. And what Scripture tells us is that the reason that creation has no peace, the reason creation is in bondage is because of the sin of man. When we fell, creation became broken by our sin. So when Jesus bears our sin and dies for our sin, creation is set free. Listen to what Romans 8.21 says. It says, Through Christ, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so one day, because Jesus died on the cross and bore our sins, creation itself will be restored. He's the Lord of peace who restores creation. And even more, Jesus is the Lord of peace because he is the only one who can fill our hearts with the peace of rest here and now. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of spiritual warfare, in the midst of sin, Jesus can bring us real peace today. This brings us to our final point. How do we experience peace? How do we experience it? Between the cross of Christ and where we are reconciled to God, and the return of Christ, where He will restore creation itself, make a new heavens and new earth, here in the middle, where we live, reconciled to God, but still waiting for that day, marred in our lives by sin and suffering and spiritual opposition. How can we have peace today? How can we have peace in suffering? How can we have peace when we face opposition? What about when we sin? What about when we're sinned against? How does the Lord of peace minister his peace to you here and now? And here's Paul's answer. Here's the main idea of today's message. Though our lives are filled with suffering, spiritual warfare, and sin, we can experience peace in the here and now through the presence, truth, and grace of Jesus the Lord of peace. Say it again. Though our lives are filled with suffering, spiritual warfare, and sin, we can experience peace here and now through the presence, truth, and grace of Jesus the Lord of peace. Look at how Paul moves forward from verse 16. He prays for their peace, then immediately he says, the Lord be with you all. Jesus gives us his peace here and now through his Presence. The Lord be with you all. You know, when a child is afraid, what do they want more than anything else? They want their mommy or daddy to hold them. They want someone who is strong and who loves them to hold their hand, to take them in their lap, to be with them in that moment. They want the reassuring presence of their strong parents who know they love them. And this is what Jesus does for us with His presence. This is what Jesus He He gives us His presence through all the peace-robbing realities of life. He grants us peace by being with us in our suffering, with us in the battle, with us when we sin. He doesn't leave us. He's not far off. By His Spirit, He has promised to be with us always to the very end of the age, until he comes. So so this morning, do you lack peace? Live with a greater awareness of the presence of Christ with you. Don't, Don't just acknowledge the gospel with your head, but lean into Jesus as your very present help in times of trouble. So this is so important. I, I, I was convicted by this this week, realizing that, that often to, when, I, when I think about, when, I, when I'm fearful, when I'm anxious, all, all I think about is, is truth, which is the next point, by the way, so it's good to think about truth, but all I do is think about truth. I just think about what do I believe, what do I know, but I treat Jesus like he's out there somewhere. I treat Jesus like He's far away. I treat Jesus like He's, he's in heaven, but He's not here. He's, he's coming one day, but He's not come yet. And I just need to remember that He's coming. I need to remember what He's done. But I don't remember that He's with me. That He's with me right now. The God of the universe, the Son of God who gave Himself for me, who loved me, is with me now. What peace am I robbing myself of by not remembering that He's with me right now? What peace are you robbing yourself of by remember, not remembering that he's with you? So church, lean into Jesus. Speak to him. Speak to him in those times. Cast yourselves on him. Tell him how much you need him. Relate to him as the God who's with you. Know that someone who is immeasurably strong and who loves you with an everlasting love, is with you at all times, in every way. In the suffering, in the spiritual warfare, in the sin, He is with you. He doesn't only give us His peace through His presence, but He gives us peace through His truth. He does. Look at verse 17. Now follow with me here. Paul says in verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Now, it may be hard to see at first how this relates to peace. But remember, we've talked about this in, in, in the epistles. Paul never wastes a word. He does not waste a word when he writes these letters. He didn't have enough ink to waste words. Okay, Why does he say this? Look back just in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 1 and 2. He says, We ask you, brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So, so these Thessalonian believers were receiving letters, apparently, in the name of Paul. And these letters contained false doctrine. And this false doctrine was leading them to be alarmed, to be anxious, to be worried, to be fearful. And Paul wrote in chapter 2, don't listen to those false letters because it's not true. What they're telling you is not true. So as he closes this letter, he wants to assure them, this is from me. This is not another false letter with, with erroneous ideas that are going to lead you all these wrong directions. This is from me. This is my handwriting. It, it would be like, you guys would know if a letter was from me based on whose signature was there. Because you guys know, if you know me, you know my signature is is not, it's not possible to duplicate it. It, it. it is so bad, so terrible, my handwriting is so awful that no one could ever forge my signature. That's the point, right? But... The point is that that Paul's saying, this this is my handwriting, this is the way I write, you know this is from me. And, And the reason he's saying that to them is because he wants them to know you have the truth here. You have the truth. You don't need to be alarmed. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be anxious because what I've given you is the truth of Jesus Christ. He wants them to have peace and that peace is grounded in the truth. Here's the reality, church, is that our hearts always follow what we believe to be true. Our hearts always follow what we believe to be true. Now, what we believe to be true isn't always true. That's where the problem comes in. We're believing lies. Our hearts are going to follow those lies. We need the truth. And in the Scriptures, we have preserved for us the truth of Jesus Christ. He is the truth. And these Scriptures are reliable, they are trustworthy, they are genuine. We have in our hands the preserved Word of God from, from thousands and thousands of manuscripts that, that testify to the, that these are the words, we can know that this is what they wrote. We, we know that. We have it here. We know that Jesus commissioned these apostles. There were eyewitnesses looking at these letters, and they were written. We know we have it. It's trustworthy. It's genuine. It's true. And Jesus ministers his peace to us by giving us truth for our hearts to follow. And so if you lack peace, you need to let the truth of the Scriptures guide your hearts into the peace of Christ. If you lack peace, you need to get into the Word of God. And know what's there. Know the truth. Let the truth guide you into peace. Finally, Jesus gives us his peace here and now through his grace. Through his presence, through his truth, and through his grace. Paul began his letter with the greeting, grace and peace. And now he closes by reminding them that peace always comes through grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor that comes to us through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Grace means that even though we are sinners, God is unshakably for us. Hear that, church. Even though you're a sinner, God is unshakably for you. That's what grace means. Grace means that everything in our lives is used by God for our good. Grace means that nothing we have done and nothing we can do will ever separate us from God's love for us. Grace means that we who were rebels have been given peace with God. We've been made citizens of His coming kingdom of peace. Grace means that we have reconciliation and it means that we will be part of that restoration, which means that right now we can have peace. Even as Jesus is with us, through His grace, we know He's for us. And He will be with us and for us until He comes. And we know this because of the truth of Scripture. So do you lack peace this morning? And then you need to come back to the cross of Christ. Where God, by His grace, gave His Son for you. Where Jesus purchased that grace by His own sacrificial blood where you remember that even though we don't deserve to ever know peace, think about that. We don't deserve peace. We act like peace is something that we should have. We deserve punishment. There will be no peace in hell, and that is where we should be. But God, by His grace, has granted us peace, and He will establish us in His peace forever and ever because our lives are continually under the grace of the cross. So we can have peace at all times in every way. As the music team comes up, I want to remind you guys of a quote that you probably know from St. Augustine. Augustine was a believer who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, and he wrote his spiritual autobiography. And this is what he said. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. As I said earlier, this is a world that is filled with restlessness. We live in a world that is desperate to know peace, and it can only be known through the Lord of Peace. Though we live in a world that is filled with brokenness, that continually steals our peace, there is a peace that we can experience today, right now, through the presence, truth, and grace of Jesus. And and, and church, one day he's coming again. He will come, and we will will enter into the fullness of his peace. Nothing will ever successfully steal our peace again. There will never be a moment of fear, never be a moment of worry, never be a moment of anxiety, never be a moment of guilt, never be a moment of sadness, because we will know his peace perfectly. And so let's continually bring our restless hearts to him and find the peace that he promises until he comes and brings us into that peace forever and ever. Let's stand and and worship together this Lord of Peace.